0: Hello. Here I'm with Nick and Fiona. A row of cars would turn off and there would be the president (laughs) coming to watch.
1: Welcome to The Playlist, our weekly podcast about the movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams and I'm joined by my colleague, Nick Bassine.
2: Hey, Nick. How's it going? Great, thanks. I am so excited about today's show. We are talking about a really interesting new movie from Spike Lee, Black Klansman. We are talking about the new show on SBS, Deep State. And we got a chance to have a great conversation with Rob Connolly, the director of the show and the director of many classic uh, Australian movies. And then we're gonna talk about what we've been watching. But first, Black Klansman. So it's the latest from Spike Lee. It's set in the 70s when Ronald Stallworth becomes the first black cop in Colorado Springs. He goes undercover to infiltrate the KKK, speaking on the phone with high ranking members like David Duke. Hello. This is Ron Stalworth
0: calling. Who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke?
2: God, last time I checked, what can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans and Irish, Italians and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else really that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. Also undercover is Flip Zimmerman, who plays the white man Ron is pretending to be.
1: This is a true story.
2: Yes. It's based it on Stalworth's memoir. And Spike Lee's built a kind of story around it. Yes, Not everything in it is totally from the memoir. Sure. So I, this was a a tricky one. I, we saw it a couple of weeks ago, and I, I've been going back and forth. I I'm not sure how I how I felt about it, mm-hmm. and because I, I found it really uneven. Like there was some stuff in it that was great, some stuff in it that just felt kind of ho hum and not really up to the challenge of the big concept. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that I loved, I really loved. I loved bringing in *Gone with the Wind* and *Birth, Birth of a of Nation*. Nation. Yeah, that was very effective. Alec Baldwin as a white supremacist is very good.
1: Yeah, it opens with a scene where he's doing a piece to camera yeah. with um, *Birth of a Nation* projected onto him. Yeah, and he's this hideous stereotype of a. You know, firebrand racist who forgets his lines, looks a bit foolish, but you don't see him again. So it's sort of, it's kind of this provocation of films that um, be a dog whistle, I guess. I
2: think they're kind of Spike Lee flourishes, yeah. and what makes him exciting, what makes his movies fun mm. and interesting. He's- yeah, there's
1: little curious moments that yes. don't lead to a bigger, but they do in a sort of a breadcrumb way. But like literally, you don't see Alec Baldwin again. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a um, nice touch.
2: And also Topher Grace is very good as David Duke. He's very good as David Duke. Unsettlingly convincing in and that role. looks identical if you look at yeah, yeah. images of David Duke at that time. It's really great. Um, <laughs> it's actually very good. There's lines like, with the right white men, we can do anything. Like Stuff like that mm. is funny and fun. Um, Harry Belafonte is good in it. He retells W.E.B. Du Bois' account of a lynching, mm. which is really stirring. And so, yeah, there was a lot of that, that kind of thing. But also, I didn't think the girlfriend um, story was all that interesting. She's a member of the Black Panther Party.
1: Yeah, one of his first tests as a police officer is to pass as an activist in, as a Black Panther, to go to a rally. And he's, he's wearing a wire, yeah, undercover cop in a Black Panther rally. And then, well, he has to lie about being a cop, basically, because he right. starts a relationship with this woman who doesn't know <laughs> he's a cop. And she has quite firm views about the police. Yes. Mm. Um, so, I like that actress
2: who plays uh, Patrice. She's really good in uh, Spider Man Homecoming as well. But I, I just didn't feel, I wasn't all that invested in their relationship. I, I liked what it represented and I, I get what was going on, but mm. it, it wasn't, that wasn't the most interesting part of the movie for me.
1: Sure. And it's not a central part of the story either. Like, it, I think at the, you know, the idea of it is how does a black cop infiltrate the KKK yeah. and the, he he does it over the phone. So he adopts a voice. Yes. <laughs> and for when there are meetings and when there's the initiation, Adam Driver comes in. He's his partner, a Jewish man who is infiltrating the KKK. So they're both passing as racist white men. And that's interesting how they, how they arrive at yeah. trying to adopt a similar voice and Adam Driver plays Flip Zimmerman and it looks at how – a man who previously hasn't really engaged with his Jewishness comes to be very much obsessed yeah. by that idea when he's in a hate group.
2: One of my favourite moments of the movie is when he says, U- up until now I-, I thought I was just a regular white man. Yeah. I didn't think about being Jewish. Mm. Now I think about it all the time. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that, yeah, that was really good. Yeah, it's a good line. There's also, like, the movie goes out of its way to um, unload references to the present. Very much so. So everything, and even now that I think about it, Alec Baldwin, that character might be a reference to Bill O'Reilly's mm-hmm. famous, um, where he keeps messing doing it, it up and doing it mm. live. That might be a stretch. But there are some very direct references to Trump, the um, his speech about Mexicans. David Duke sounds very uses all the code words of the alt-right, the current alt-right.
1: Very much. There's a play on Make America Great again, yes, I think, there, as yes. well as a bit of a nod to that.
2: Um, Which
1: I, the joke, like... I didn't find it particularly funny. No. Like when it's trying for humour, it didn't work for me. Like when it's showing hideous racism, I felt deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> like, you, yeah. like there's a lot of N-words obviously running around the screen and it's when you're showing racist people being racist, it's very difficult to watch as it should be. <laughs> so on that level, it absolutely works. Yeah. Yeah, but when the movie was trying to be funny, it, I didn't find it all that funny. It, it was a little too winking in those kind of moments. Definitely, when it was playing yeah. it for laughs.
2: Too winking,
1: so that's where it sort of fell down for me. But as a provocation and as a – just to look at how we all think racism was fixed back in the day. I mean, I don't think that. So, but, you know, people yes, make yes. the argument racism is over now because we America had a black president. But, yeah, it draws very direct parallels to the present day, including at the end of the film where it does show footage of Charlottesville. Yes. And it's dedicated to Heather Heyer who was killed in, in the marches yeah. in Charlottesville
2: and I, a year I, ago. Even after not being all that into the the over overly winking stuff, I, I was still – you know, I, I found the ending kind of stirring. I thought it was, mm. it was moving, and and it's a kind of a it's it's something that he has done before with Malcolm X. Yeah. You know, it, suddenly we're in the present day, and it's kids standing up saying, "I'm Malcolm X," one of whom was John David Washington, yeah, Denzel Washington's Denzel son, who yep. plays Ron Stallworth. And there are moments like at the end where it where you see this horrible footage over this kind of weeping jazz feels a little bit like Four Little Girls, Spike Lee's amazing documentary about the, um, the church bombing in Alabama. Mm. Every other day, there's an interview with someone who is still celebrating the Confederacy and downplaying the role of slavery in the Civil War, American Civil War. And it's still very relevant and important. It just wasn't, yeah. I, there was just some stuff. Well, I mean,
1: obviously, you can separate the issue it's addressing from the film itself and how it tells it as a film.
2: Except that when something's done really artfully, yeah, you don't think about, it, you don't separate it. You you think about it, and I don't know, I'm, I don't, I don't have a good example of someone that just that totally does it, where you don't have to think. Oh, they're talking about Trump there. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs>
2: What's your favorite Spike Lee movie?
1: Do the Right Thing. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I yep. think. Yeah, I'd land on that, I think. What about you?
2: Wasn't prepared to answer this question.
1: <laughs> uh, you can dish it out, but you can't take it.
2: <laughs> uh, I will go with Do the Right Thing also. I guess it's. A, I'm just copying your answer.
1: Yeah, I'm doing what I'm saying.
2: But it's uh, very stirring. It's very funny.
1: And friend of the show, Oh, um,
2: Giancarlo Esposito. That's right. He's great in it. There are, you know, 10 other movies that have amazing stuff yeah. in it. Inside Man, Malcolm X, School mm. Days, all the...
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're just listing Spike Lee movies yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of Spikely movies, SBS Viceland on Monday nights has a movie season which features some Spike Lee films. And on Monday the 20th of August, you can catch Spike Lee's Old Boy, his remake of Park Chan Wook's classic Korean film. That's 8.30 on SBS Viceland. And Black Klansman is now in series.
2: So now we're moving to Deep State, which is a new show starting on SBS this week. So Deep
1: State is a brand new spy thriller, sort of in the vein of a homeland or... Born Sure, movies. yes. Um, so it follows an ex-spy played by Mr Mark Strong, who's got some form in this area, and his world is turned upside down when he's dragged back into the world of covert intelligence and counter-terrorism and black ops. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you know. Sure, that. yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's directed by Rob Connolly, Australian director of... Great films like The Bank, Balibo, also Three Dollars, Paper Planes, and series like Barracuda. So he's directing this one, which is yeah, a little different. It's a you know lots of shoot 'em up, big car explosions, lots of ticking clock kind of kind of business in this one. A
2: lot of intense action.
1: Very much. Yeah.
2: So Deep State is an exciting opportunity to see Mark Strong, who is great in Five Million Movies mm. um, as a supporting actor, like. Um Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, Tinker- which
1: screens on SBS on Friday night.
2: He's good in The Kingsman. He's Best under- thing about The Kingsman, I would yeah. say. Uh, he's underrated in um, The Brothers Grimsby and Green sure. Lantern.
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> his dulcet tones feature in all the Who Do You Think You Are? UK episodes as the narrator.
2: What? Yeah. Uh, there's nothing he can't do. And mm. now he spreads his wings and he's the main guy. He's the he's guy. lead. Yeah. Finally. We had the chance to talk to, as you mentioned before, Rob Connolly. He was absolutely delightful.
1: Yeah, here he is. Rob Connolly, thank you so much for joining us on The Playlist.
0: How Lovely to chat to you.
1: So Deep State. Yeah. How did you come to direct this series?
0: Uh, I was coming back through the UK after being at a TV festival in Biarritz in France with the TV show Barracuda that I directed here in Australia. And I had a very short window of opportunity there. My agent flipped me a script. I read it, I thought, wow, this is amazing. And they were looking for a director, actually looking for a director to leave that Sunday for Morocco. (laughs) And I I loved it, I thought it was fantastic. So I met met the producers and one of the producers, Hilary Bevan Jones, I'd, I'd known of because she'd produced State of Play, which I still think is one of the great works of television that I've ever seen. Sure. And uh, I threw my hat in the ring to see if they'd uh, let me direct it.
2: In these uh, uncertain times, Deep State has come to mean something a little bit different. Like it, it means, at least in America, it yeah. means it's, you know, Donald Trump is positioning himself against the Deep State. Did you, like how did that come, how does that come into when you talk about, when you've been talking about this show and yeah. Like,
0: it's interesting the term, you know, deep state and its history, yeah. you know, and coming out largely out of a lot of, you know, what we saw happen, you know, right through the Middle East and, and the idea of the existence of a deep state really that sits beneath any government. You can have a change of government and um, certain things manifest regardless. And I think if you look at United States foreign policy post-Vietnam, you could kind of argue <laughs> that... There's a constant pattern there, uh, the and Ameri- the you know the you know military industrial complex and how that functions. I think Donald Trump's taken a lot of things and just used them to his own ends. And this kind of broad brushstroke use of that term, as if to say there's a whole world of against him, and certainly a world within his own government against him, is kind of um, how he's kind of stolen the term really. But its intention within the show, I, I guess, is more true to the typical understanding of that. You know, it's a, you know, on one level, it's a kind of guilty pleasure political thriller, but it's also got a really interesting kind of look at how, in this case, the uh, United States and the UK actually work to a common agenda to achieve the dismantling of the Iranian nuclear deal. So, which Donald Trump quite... uh, with good timing, actually, has managed to do all on his own, <laughs> without the need of the deep state. Um, <laughs> but uh, but certainly, it was the topicality was incredible. Really, yeah. it's incredible. We're making the show, and this stuff's in the news every day. And, yep. and it was kind of uncanny, really. I think the term deep state was cropping up on you know Google searches, and the New York Times were using it regularly. It was like, mm. and certainly some of the issues that we were were playing around with with the show and trying to explore I had a topicality that that I really enjoy in my work a political kind of timeliness um, which gives the work a kind of relevance. Mm.
1: And typically you produce the projects that you, you direct as well, but here you're not. As you mentioned, you know, it was sort of, sort of a directing gig you got offered. Yeah. <laughs> Can you be in Morocco by Sunday? How is that different for you? How is this sort of exercise of directing something that you didn't steer into production necessarily?
0: Oh, it's really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of relief. Uh, you know, I've spent years, the last 20 years, you know, do, you know working very hard to uh, finance and develop projects to make. And largely I've done that to kind of empower my own destiny and to collaborate with people I'd like to create, you know, work with. And I've been very, very fortunate to have been gifted some great projects. You know, I was offered The Slap, you know, by Tony Ayres, Helen Bowden, the gang at Matchbox at the time. I mean, what an incredible opportunity that was. And then that was followed up, you know, with Underground and then Barracuda. And so I I kind of have enjoyed the relief of just being able to be a director Mm -hmm. and to work with great producers, actually. I've been really lucky. And so this fell in a kind of lineage of that. I'd also always had a bit of a sense that I'd not miss the boat, but I I was kind of anxious that I'd never really done something overseas, you know, running my own business and doing my own work. I'd made Balabo and his Timor and I had done work like that myself, but I'd never really rolled the dice to see how I'd go kind of working on an international project of this scale and a lot of my peers and contemporaries have done kind of stunning work really. You know, I think of Kate Dennis and Dana Reed on Handmaid's mm-hmm. Tale and, you know, it's a very exciting time, um, particularly a lot of the Australian TV directors in the US right now doing, you know, hitting it out of the park and so I, I really enjoyed it you know, being offered this chance. Sure. You know, I was really nervous, I've got to say, you know, turning up on set, not knowing, you know, you do your own work. And when you're thrown in a situation where I knew none of the crew, you know, I, I, my work here, even the TV I've done, I usually work with people that I know. And so to go to Morocco and be working with, you know, a hundred plus crew, none of whom I'd ever worked with before, was was exciting.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> was it a, all British production or was there local um, production?
0: In Morocco. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, an amazing producer there, Khadija Alami, who she was the Moroccan end of the night manager. Okay. And she's produced an incredible array of stuff actually and has an amazing company and owns studios and um, has championed also a lot of young women in Morocco and so impressive really. And so she ran that side of it. And I think really of the crew when we filmed in Morocco, about 20% of the crew came out of the UK and the rest were Moroccan. Cool. And so, you know, obviously the challenge for me of working in Arabic and French, mm-hmm. neither language which I speak, and so directing in that world. But I had an incredible first assistant director, Mustafa, a local guy who had done a massive amount of work who helped, helped me navigate that. And I, I love the Moroccan crew. I mean this is a crew that's worked on, you know, a range of things from Blackhawk down and, you know, right through Captain Phillips this team had worked on and done massive, massive studio films and studio TV and, you know, their skill level was exceptional but also their kind of spirit. Australian and Moroccan crews actually work really, really well together. There's kind of a really nice professionalism mixed with a playful creative spirit which I really loved.
2: It's, uh, it's interesting you mentioned Night Manager because this um, there are a lot of John Le Carre comparisons being made to Deep State, Homeland, 24, that yeah. kind of vein. I guess it's good to be compared to stuff people like. But what do you make of, of that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, it's a good, good question. I I'm, mean I'm the brief on the project was really that, you know, on one hand you had more cerebral Lacare adaptations, you know, say a film that I love, the Tinker Tailor yeah. film, yeah. but then on the other end you've got twenty four, you know, which is a full on action, visceral, you know, thriller TV show, and Fox and the producers really were trying to make something that fell in the middle. Yeah. So you have got the kind of politics of a of a sophisticated Lacare work, and certainly the team that made it, you know, and wrote the scripts, really passionate kind of interest in that, but also you know, um, coupled together with, you know, a fun adventure and a ride of a show. I mean, it's a page turner. It's got action. I mean, it's kind of, you know, I loved it. I had the stunt guy who does Paul Greengrass's films. I had the, you know, pyrotechnic guy from the Bond films, <laughs> you know. I, and they wanted to have set pieces, you know. They needed to have big visceral action set pieces which I I really enjoyed working on, so I, th- I think the show kind of falls in that nice place between the two.
2: Right.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Hmm. And um, there's a common link there with Tinker Taylor, with Mark Strong being in yeah. the lead obviously and he's, you know, it's not his first turn as a spy. He's got some <laughs> runs on the board there. Um, how did you work together with him?
0: Yeah, he's excellent. I mean, I love the work he's done over many, many years on stage, on film. I couldn't believe my luck to get to work with an actor of that kind of level. He's a an absolute delight to work with. He's a rigorous, well-prepared, intelligent actor, you know, he's kind of interrogating the work to do his best uh, interpretation of the character as, as possible and and we had a lot of fun. I um I can't imagine anyone else actually playing that role. It's so such a complicated mix of of a man who has done terribly dark things that you need to feel a kind of em- empathy for. And he's, you know, on one hand got to do, you know, scenes as a father and uh, a husband uh, together with scenes that are, you know, quite complex and and challenging. He, uh, he'd done the film Syriana in Casablanca. We, we filmed a lot of the show in Casablanca. We actually stayed in the hotel where they filmed syriana yeah <laughs> i know it's kind of like casablanca doubles as, Where's you know, did you find we did Rick's. go we did go there and have a have uh, a couple of meals one night and uh, yeah so it's kind of the, the mythology of casablanca versus <laughs> the reality the reality is it's a massive big city you know with an incredible population and a great i mean i used to go on these walks to unwind because it was just pretty crazy shoot and every saturday i'd go for a walk in casablanca and the moroccan crew would draw a map for me and let me set off and they'd send me off into the you know this is a city with eight million people <laughs> and uh, i had some great adventures in fact one time i had been walking for two and a half hours in the middle of nowhere and kind of remote bit of casablanca and there it is Cafe Bondi, because <laughs> <So, laughs> wow. um, Australians have been going there for a long time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we stayed in the hotel. So Mark Strong had filmed, the, you know, uh, played a character in um, in Syriana, and uh, a different character to the character in Deep State. But they both have a very similar torture scene, both in both the film and the show. Um,
2: he's he's kind of known for smaller more supporting roles was there a difference in what you wanted to get out of him now that this was his lead role
0: well you know i mean i guess actors kind of can get frustrated probably in their career by what people perceive they can do and whether you're leading or not i mean he you know the fact that he's the lead in the whole show over eight hours and he drives it all and and you know i guess that may be part of what appealed to him as well you know he loved the scripts and i had a great meeting and so did the the showrunner and you know, it was a kind of complex character which I think if you look at his career he likes to play, you know, which is probably where some of those great supporting roles that he's yeah, played come from so. because he's not looking for characters that uh, reveal themselves immediately. He's looking for characters that, you know, much like Max Easton in this show who, uh, who have many facets to their, to their personality. But, no, he's, he's amazing. I had great actors. I mean, the young guy who plays his son Joe Dempsey from Game of Thrones, he was awesome. I'd, I'd seen him in Skins and I'd known his work. And um, and Lynn Renee, who plays Mark's wife, a Belgian Belgian actress. And um, Karima McAdams, who plays the young... She's Moroccan English, actually, who plays the young spy. And incredible, you know, for me to work with all these people I didn't know. Yeah. You know, I've made... I don't know, three or four films with David Wenham. He's a maid. I've made a couple of films with Anthony LaPaglia, you know. I didn't have any safety net. didn't have any of my, my Australian actor friends in the show. It was, it was wonderful.
1: <laughs> and you sort of touched on it before, but um, you like to explore ethics in your work or, you know, complex complexities. You mentioned like Mark Strong does, but you, you have a through line through your work as well. Is that part of what attracted you to this as well, sort of the, just that that complex idea of the ethics and of of Max, the the main character particularly, and him in in this world.
0: Yeah, I'm always kind of troubled by the, I don't know, that you know, you're trying to justify the career you've been on. You know, I've been lucky to live this creative life. You know, I turned 50 at Christmas and looking back on it, I go, since I left school I've lived a creative life. And there's a real gift in that, you know, and... And a lot of that has been supported by subsidy and by opportunities that have come because the Australian government and the way we support our culture, you know, places like SBS, you know, championing stories. And and so you you couple that together with this question about what the meaning is in what you do. And I've always questioned that and tried to find a balance between making work that's entertaining and compelling for an audience but also is driven by something that is important to me. that You know, even I think a kids' film like Paper Planes that I made, I made it for my own children and also because I felt like our children weren't growing up with heroes that were kids with an Australian accent. You know, I was kind of horrified one time when I took my kids to see Hannah Montana the movie when they were little and I was like, oh, dear, they're (laughs) going to grow up
2: feeling like
0: the future is people, you know. American fans
2: of the show—is that why you took them to the movie? <laughs> yeah, they
0: were, and they were really little. And and I looked and I thought, dear, this is set in middle America. They're all in American accents. The themes and issues are Amer-, you know. And th- and this was when I started right. going. I have to make so even a film which is a big family film like Paper Planes, I know very clearly. I know the why in it. Mm-hmm. You know the why why make it, and that's important to me. And I think over the years, that journey of trying to find the reason and to try and illuminate some aspect of the human condition or, you know, a film like Balabo, trying to reveal something, that a truth that's been denied. Mm. Uh, I think in terms of deep state, you know, I'm really fascinated at the moment by a kind of world where people have lost faith in the pillars that used to underpin their life, you know, so the pillar of, you know, the church you know, the pillar of government, the pillar of our financial institutions <laughs> with the Banking Royal Commission. It's just like the most amazing drama. You just can't, every day you read, it yeah, can't, yeah. can't get any worse. And then something else that they've done comes up. And so if you take away those things, you know, I think my parents probably would have felt that the church, you know, that government, that our financial institutions could help guide our our lives. Mm-hmm. And and we kind of can see all of them significantly flawed and uh, and particularly government now. I think, you know, the kind of um, space between the vocation that a politician might have because they want to change the world and the ambition and their own personal financial gain and what drives and motivates has kind of corrupted a sense of that and... So I'm fascinated with stories in that world about individualism, about how you as an individual have to act and make choices. And if, if you start thinking that your vote counts less, then how do you act in a way as an individual um, that can exact change? And then how do groups of individuals kind of gather around issues that are critical and important? Now, I'm an optimist. You know, so I really feel like younger generations, Gen Z, I think they mm. call it, you know, that generation that went to Washington in America and incredible, those protests against the gun laws. I found that very moving. Mm. How do you do that when you're 17 in a country where it's so entrenched? How do you have the guts to do it? That's very impressive. And so it's a big theme for me mm. across my work. And, uh, you know, in Deep State you set individuals against two mighty superpowers who are um, working with great self-interest and uh, you see what happens. It's, it's, great, it's great dramatically, mm. but also I think politically it's, it's exciting times.
2: Mm. Speaking of, uh, you mentioned Balabo, that's going to be, um, it's come, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary next year. Do you... Um...
1: Of your movie. Yeah, the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So,
2: yeah. yeah. Like when you reflect on it now, what, how do you... Think about it all these years later. Yeah.
0: I am so proud of that film and I think I've been restless in my work around it, trying to reclaim some of that spirit, you know, taking a small crew to that country, uh, working with the Timorese. Jose Ramos-Horta was the president at the time, trying to tell a story through the Timorese point of view. And dealing with the families of these men that have been killed and um, and meeting a lot of Timorese who'd suffered too during that time and and grappling with a moment in history that's still not really acknowledged. Mm. You know, it's an expedient thing. Australia, you know, our relationship with Indonesia is very important and we mistakenly make the view that that means that we have to just turn a blind eye to something that's uncomfortable. But I know that, uh, you know, Balabo's banned in Indonesia and it probably will remain banned for many, many years. But I know whenever I run into young Indonesian filmmakers, you know, Indonesia's an amazing country. It's got an amazing young population. And like all young people, they're not afraid of the truth of what previous generations have done. And so I meet them and it's incredible to have discussions and how that film's revealed some aspect of their nation's history to them in a way that they're not frightened of, you know. So you've got the kind of machinations of the Australian government fearing the repercussions of rattling our close neighbour, which kind of denies the fact that these two, you know, it's an incredible country, Indonesia, with some tragic things in its past. Australia's similar. We've got some tragic things in our past in ways we've acted. And, uh, you know, you think of the apology and with the Stolen Generation, for example, the optimist in me goes, reveal the truth of our actions, acknowledge them and let history kind of have the truth and then move on. I mean, there's still stuff about what happened in Balabo that is redacted, you know, from from the Australian government's public records of that event, which is incredible, really. I, I always joke, it's kind of like in 1990 still not revealing things about what happened in nineteen forty five at the end of World War Two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kinda of, you know, but anyway, I'm I'm getting on my political kind of high horse about yeah. that film. But I feel like, you know, Balabo transcends the film. Like I look yeah. back, I go, I, I I go, it was part of something something that was bigger than me, bigger than any of us involved. And I I just remain really Glad that that opportunity came to make that film and ho- and hope that it will continue to have a life you know Oscar mm. Isaac, who played Ramos Horta was yeah, gone you know I know he's
2: enormous
0: he was the beginning of his career That's and amazing, you know man. and here he is now one of the biggest actors on the planet, and I understand he 's kept in touch with Ramos Horter and okay. who he played and you know, you'd be filming a scene in remote part of East team or recreating a tragic massacre and Oscar would be there playing Ramos Horta and a row of cars would turn up and there would be the president <laughs> coming <laughs> to watch, you know. <laughs> I think there's a kind of stress for, for Oscar. But maybe on the 10-year anniversary I should do something with that film. I, mm. I, I hadn't I actually cut. made that. Can Yeah. I've actually always thought, and it's so interesting with, uh, with the great work that SBS does in the four by one hour format.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I did Barracuda for the ABC, but, you know, Christos Sholkus' book, Four by One Hours. And I have pondered going back and having a look at Balabo because mm-hmm. the film's 110 minutes long. That's after trimming it down. I yeah. mean, the the first assembly edit I had of it was four and a half hours or something. Oh. So, That'd be interesting. Yeah, there's a lot that I filmed that didn't make its way into the into the film, and uh, I wonder if a deeper look at that, you know, in this yeah. era where television's so important, yeah. whether maybe for the ten year anniversary, now that Oscar's more successful, you know, maybe it could yeah. draw yeah. a different yeah. audience. That's a great idea. Let's, let's, let's make, it make, some calls. Yeah. <laughs> make
2: some calls. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, we shot it on Super sixteen. Which was incredible to go up there. Mm. So I have, it's amazing, I actually have all the film, you know, tucked away in the archive, you know, that we filmed it on. Yeah. And uh, so it would be like a kind of, I don't know, like going back in and rescanning the film and which, yeah. you know, we filmed. Anyway, I... I think maybe prompted by this discussion, I <laughs> go All and right. have a
2: look at that. The script would have been 110, 120 pages, yeah. right, for a, a normal feature-length movie. It was, yeah. But do you, do you normally shoot twice much as longer. much like
0: that? Yeah, I uh, improvised a lot on that film, and uh, there was a kind of madness about the production model of going there and just embarking on this and. I I was trying to find a way that the camera was able to almost, I don't know, follow real events that were unfolding. I think it's something we see in in drama. It's something we did in Deep State as well, long conversations about this, that in this era of television drama being so dominant, like there's so much television drama being created, that the mechanics of the dramatic structure of it is becoming repetitive inevitably because even at the highest level because you can feel the writer's room discussing how you psychologize characters and motivations and the engine room of drama because television needs so much drama means that you're constantly creating stuff. And I, and I did an interesting meeting in the US with HBO or and they were kind of talking about this very idea and saying how successful their documentary series are now mm-hmm. because people are feeling the inner workings of the drama. Sure. You know, they're feeling that it's not quite, as truthful anymore because they're watching so much of it. They're seeing repetitions.
2: Right. Interesting.
0: Whereas documentaries not like that. So what you're seeing with filmmakers who are directing television is an attempt to try and find a way to make the drama feel like it's got a kind of visceral, authentic narrative propulsion mm-hmm. rather than an artificial narrative propulsion that's been created in a writer's room. That's not to deny that great work gets made in a writer's frame.
1: Sure.
0: I mean, I think you might, you might feel it. I, I've watched some TV recently in drama and I've, I've just sat back and turned to my wife and we, I've just said, it's, it's so weird, isn't it? There are two actors over there saying words written by someone else in a fake kind of artificial world. It's, it's like that, you know, the, there's a pact when you create drama that the audience have to believe that it's real for yeah. a moment in order to feel something. And it's quite a provocative notion that in a world with so much drama, how do you do that now? And I think Balabo was a massive attempt to do that. And some of, I mean, I got uh, Deep State, interestingly, because the producers and the show creator had seen Balibo, Right, okay. And they were like, that's what we want. Yeah. <laughs> we want that kind of style. And, uh, and I think Deep State has a lot of those techniques I used in Balabo to try and come to that. Sense of you watching a real a real thing unfolding in front of you.
1: Mm. And at the Sydney Film Festival, I I was watching your conversation with David Stratton, who interestingly was bringing up sort of your filmography in through the lens of his own reviews of those films at the time. (laughs) What was that like? (laughs) And especially on Balibo, because he's softened his view on Balibo, I think, because he he wasn't. That was awesome to hear. Yeah,
0: that was awesome. I mean, he when they you know invited me to be the subject of his in conversation each year and I was really flattered and I thought, oh, this will go really well and I'd had a catch-up with David and it was really good. And then when I sat down and because we know that David diarizes every film he's ever seen, it would be amazing to get access to that. Mm. <laughs> and I didn't realise, but he does it straight away. Like so he watches five films, at the you know, writes, you know, and so to sit with him, and he had these pieces of paper, as you recall, yeah. and for him to say, okay, today we're going to go, and then he starts with my first film. <laughs> and I and I, I, think I turned to the audience and said, look, stick with it, they're not all good. <laughs> Settle
1: in, uh, folks. Yeah,
0: and the generosity of his contribution to our national cinema and his engagement and his capacity to uh uh, have a have a conversation with filmmakers across mm. your career. I remember the boys, you know, yeah. the first screening I ever had of that 10 a.m. in the morning. The print was just finished before it went to Berlin. David and Margaret coming down to the Dendi at Opera Keys and watching it and having a conversation. I mean it's very exciting. So to sit with him. And then I, I was really touched that he was able to because he gave me a really hard time with Balaba about mm. the handheld and i was really surprised because i was like well i went to east timor i took 10 people i filmed in the real places these events happened i filmed on the cameras these guys used the old lenses the you know that was a war zone yeah. at one point you know i kind of thought the handheld wasn't such a big deal <laughs> um and i i don't know i'd been like it's funny you i have you have a, a really robust engagement with critics and i was a bit hurt actually i sure. was a bit like I was surprised and i and to be on that panel and for you know for him to turn to the audience and say, "I've watched this again, and it's um it's a better film than I remembered it mm. you know and and to have that conversation made that discussion with him quite electric,
1: yeah, I thought i could feel
0: it yeah, yeah and because uh, I feel like he'd been a great champion of my earlier political films like the bank yeah um and um, which I've got to do something about that this year with the Banking You've... Royal Commission. On...
1: <laughs> <laughs> the time is right. yeah. I remember the time there
0: back in the day when you'd fly on a plane and there was only one film playing uh-huh. rather than on your screen yep. Yep. and I was on a um, doing a Q and a with the bank and we'd put it on the Qantas and I was flying from Sydney to Perth and they played the film and the, the, the moment in it where David Wenham says, I just hate banks, the entire, you know, <laughs> Uh, passengers on the it all clapped, oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, wow. but uh, some things haven't changed. Mm. But no, I love, I've, I've really enjoyed talking with David. I think his contribution to our national cinema is pretty amazing.
2: Is is there an area of um, like a contemporary Australian issue, like I guess like the banking commission, that you would want to make a new movie out of, or tack tackle, spark some debate? Is there about?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm working on Tim Winton's Blueback. Uh, which is a great, uh, he calls it a fable for all ages. It's uh, a book about the ocean and it's uh, a big passion project for me that I've been working on and off in various forms over many years on. But it's the big film, it's the big epic feature film, This is Our Hope, about saving the ocean. Mm -hmm. And it begins with a woman later in her life as a marine biologist kind of despairing at the state of the Barrier Reef and returning to a small bay where her mother is dying and remembering when she was a little girl um, one summer when her mother introduced her to the sea and to a blue groper and to issues of, of the environment. And she kind of gets some great inspiration from her mother and is inspired to go and find a way to save the ocean. It's It's an optimistic film that... Probably follows more in my career in the spirit of paper planes. I also did the turning with Tim Winton, and I have a great love of him and his work and his yeah contribution. But I think it's I mean if I can pull this off. I mean i I think it's a massive issue for us as Australians, the ocean I think it's a massive issue for the world sure. I mean the plastics in the ocean, the depletion of the ocean, the pollution of the ocean, and I think we're confronted with this thing we we have been gifted this incredible reef you know the first time I saw it I was in a you know I was a young kid in a, in a glass bottom boat heading across the sandy water and then the boat turned, and there was the reef you know and I remember kind of Tearing up at the sight of this magnificent thing. And it's dying. Mm-hmm. And it will die if the ocean keeps r- rising in temperature. And we do have discussions still about whether mines and should be built nearby and whether super tankers with petrol should be allowed to pass through it. And I mean, it's staggering to me. Well, yeah, I know. can't believe it.
1: Either.
0: Mm. Um, I'd, lo- I'd love to make that. We're, we're financing mm-hmm. that at the moment. Okay. I've, I've written that and we're. Hoping to make a big family film about a, a girl, a fish in the ocean. Yeah. So that's the, that's the hope.
1: Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, you're attached to the dry, sort of yeah, a non-ocean. Um, yeah, yeah, sort of a, a drought-stricken farm, also timely. Yeah. Um, and it, it, where is that in terms of readiness?
0: We're working on that now and hoping to make that later this year, next yeah. year. It's going really well. Jane Harper's book's been a massive, massive success. Yeah. and...
1: We did but, it
0: in my book club, actually. <laughs> oh, good, yeah, yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome, and and I, and I think it's a great story. And you know, she's written another book with the same detective. And I think, why can't we do that as a big movie? You know, why can't we have a massive, big, you know, franchise with a detective, an Australian detective, in the cinema? And and it's a fantastic kind of look in an Australia that I know. I grew up in the Blue Mountains, and you know, the themes of that book about a man returning to where he grew up, where he left when he was 15, a similar time to when I left the mountains and and what's changed and and what, and in that case, he's believed to have, by the town, to have killed a young girl, uh, which creates a great mystery. But, but I think for a lot of us, those themes about looking back into your life and looking at you know, where you began your life and whether if you'd stayed there mm. or, you know, if you did stay there, what that means, or if you left there and, and how that shaped you is, is fantastic in that book. No, I'm really happy with that. I'm working with Bruna Papandrea and mm. Jodie Madison. Bruna produced Big Little Lies, which was awesome, and, mm. um, and she's a friend over many, many years, so that's a, a great project to be involved with.
2: Can you take uh, the temperature of the um the state of the industry, Australian film industry? I mean you kind of said yeah. things about it in the past and uh where where would where do you think we're, we're at now?
0: Look, I think
2: that you know,
0: I oh, look, I've been very lucky because I'm, you know, I run a company that predominantly makes feature films, but I've been able to ebb and flow between feature films and television. And I think it's a real danger to you know some people say, "Oh, the future's just television, you know I think the future is a mix between television and cinema and and I love I love movies, I love going to the cinema i you know taking my family last year to see Lion, you know, and sitting there with my teenage daughters and my wife and crying and what in the in a packed cinema. I mean it's an Australian story. But at the same token, you know, all getting together and watching, you know, a drama on TV and losing ourselves in that is a fantastic experience too. So I I think the rhetoric about cinema being dead and the future being TV is is an error of judgement really. I think it denies the fact that we love collective experiences. Where I do think it's interesting times is that TV is so good that it throws the gauntlet down to why cinema is different. Like, why go out? Mm -hmm. And so I love that. You know, they say there's people who, you know, in the stock market, they say there's people who make money when the stock market's going up because they're optimistic. There's people who make money when the stock market's going down because they're pessimists. But the people who make the most money do well when the market's going all over the place and doesn't know what's going on (laughs) (laughs) because it's a time of opportunity. I think for filmmakers it's an amazing time of opportunity and the challenge is, you know, to make things theatrical. You know, we did the turning, it was three hours long, we had an interval, we had a program, we had 17 different creative voices. I I, last year did Stephen Page and Bangara's first feature, Spear, Um, you know, I can imagine Blueback being a massive big uh, film that embraces the kind of cinematic scale. I, I'm looking at ways of shooting that on the largest format cameras yeah, that right. exist because if you're going to go to the cinema, yeah, you yeah. want to see our oceans. Uh, you know, we're, we're hoping to film in Bremer Bay, which is where our hero returns at the bottom of Western Australia, most exquisite, beautiful part of Australia and I think if you want to take people in other parts of the world there theatrically you've got to show them and so i like the challenge i I also think a wonderful opportunity has come up too which is to be distinctive and bold in cinema and uh, we have a whole engine room of our company really where we do smaller intimate films we just had a film open at the melbourne film festival last saturday night acute misfortune about the uh, visual artist Adam Cullen. It's a work of fiction based on Eric Jensen's book and it's made by a young filmmaker who was in Balabo, one of the Balabo Five actors, Thomas Wright, and he's just done an amazingly bold, evocative work about this artist and his relationship with this young journalist and it was made for a reasonable price. So, yeah, and no, I'm, you know, I kind of... I feel like we've got to get our act together if we want, we want to keep making films, but that's not a bad thing.
2: Yeah. When you talk about, I guess, in a time that we had a, a franchise, like about a, a few movies um, based around one character or anything, like yeah. you, are there things that are stop- preventing that from happening or is it just a matter of time or uh, do you see where the opportunity is? Obviously, you might. <laughs> the only
0: thing that provides any barrier really is the continual avalanche that I guess is probably going to go on for the next, I don't know, infinitely, which is all the superhero films being made by the studios, yep. you've got to think that, that cinema is, um, you know, I always use the anecdote that it's, it's like uh, a cold supermarket. You know, you've got to fight for shelf space. You know, if you make toothpaste and you go to where the Colgate toothpaste is and they've got 50 different forms of Colgate toothpaste just designed so they can fill every bit of shelf space... <laughs> And if you're lucky, you might be able to get your toothpaste in the organic section <laughs> because uh, I always think the Australian film industry is like the organic food section in the in the supermarket and it's on the bottom three levels. <laughs> oh, um, way up high, you can't get to it. <laughs> but uh, look, I've been really lucky because, you know, I worked on Paper Planes with uh, Roadshow and they're awesome. Like they they, you know, they had huge success with Red Dog and what mm. they did with Paper Planes and... They they get the shelf space. They own cinemas. They know what you have to spend. They, you know, they really have, you know, on bigger films. I mean, we've got awesome distributors and cinemas for independent films. But to make a big film, you need to be battling with, you know, you might open with the late, against the latest Pixar film and the latest Avengers film. Right. And you've got to somehow get, you know, a space. I, I love this... Um, Facebook thing that was going around where someone posted a thing. They said, hey, it was when Thor opened, the latest Thor. They said, hey, I'm down at the cinema. I just need some advice. Which film should I see? And they photographed the board. It was like Cinema 1 Thor, Cinema 2 Thor, <laughs> Cinema <laughs> 8 Thor. And then someone else got onto it and they said, yeah, hey, got the same problem. <laughs> Which one do you think I should see? And, they were, and, it was, and then all these people around Australia started wow. photographing the boards just, you know. Yeah, and, wow. Uh, but uh, you know, I mean, look at the success of Jane Harper's book. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, a million copy. I mean, it's sold everywhere in the world. It's like a, you know, when I was in London doing Deep State, the edit, BBC Book of the Month. You know, you go into the Waterstones bookshop, piles of The Dry. You know, you have got to be proud. It's an Australian story, and so I, I think I think it's fun. My my experience is after Paper Planes, Australian audiences will see it. Right. I mean, people make the mistake of thinking they won't. If it's good,
1: and they know about it, <laughs> and they know
0: about it, yeah. and you've kind of you've managed to get the shelf space at eye height, <laughs> um, you can uh, you can get people there, mm. you know. And so I'm I'm really excited to kind of continue to juggle a career between between works of cinema and and works for TV. Mm.
1: We're a movies and TV culture podcast, so we like to wrap things up by asking our guests what they've been watching lately. Yeah, loving or hating anything. Yeah, what have you been watching lately? Montana.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's right. Look, I finished watching *Handmaid's Tale* the second season, and Dana Reed obviously did such a great job for for you guys with um, *Sunshine*.
1: That birth episode. Yeah, it's
0: incredible, and I'm really so excited to see that kind of work. And I enjoyed actually watching it one episode a week. Yeah. I'm not the binge culture. Like I've got this whole thing about the conversation and the discussion. Remember when The Slap came out, one episode a week and yeah. it was like the water cooler discussion about the episode and and our consumption habits um, and I understand, you know, Deep State's going out one episode yeah. a week, probably frustrate the, someone who likes to binge. Yeah. I've just started watching Patrick Melrose. Okay. And yep. as a filmmaker it's pretty incredible really I mean on the slap we were allowed to do our episodes each each episode in the style of what we thought that episode was going to be and rather than having a consistent style and I'm only up to two episodes in Patrick Melrose but I can already see the kind of the cinematic scope of the different ways I mean it's great and Hugo Weaving obviously and uh, I think that's pretty exceptional um, and then I guess the next things I'll, I'll be checking out are films at the um, Melbourne Film I mean, Festival when yeah, I get sure. back.
2: Well, um, have you been to the theatre lately? Have you seen anything in the theatre?
0: The last film I saw was uh, Strange Colours, which okay. is uh, an Australian film made by an emerging filmmaker set in Lightning Ridge about a young woman who goes up there to find a dad, really, It's awesome. It's a real talent here and you'd want to see it in the cinema too and, in fact, I liked it so much that I've booked tickets to take my teenage daughters to see it Um, next week. It's playing again. Also because it's made by a 28-year-old woman directing her first feature. It's produced by a very impressive producer, Kate Laurie. It's got a female protagonist, an empowered character going into an unfamiliar world, Mm -hmm. Lightning Ridge, and I think we're going to see a lot more from them. I think it's it was made for the Venice Biennale Fund. I think they made it for a very, very small budget, played in Venice. I thought the scope of it and the world of it, it's, it's almost like a kind of female skewed wake in fright. Yeah, right. And it's pretty exceptional actually. And I think, again, it shows a new generation that are not trapped by, you know, I mean, we were joking before about shooting a film on an iPhone or, you know, they're not trapped by... The barriers of technology. When I came to film, it was like it was a rich kid's game, you know. I'd come from directing theatre, and you had to shoot on thirty-five mil, and how did you pay for that? And you know, and was now you're seeing this incredible stories coming out of these these new filmmakers. Mm. So yeah, and I thought uh, I thought that was a real standout. Yeah,
1: I've heard good things about that one. I've missed it when it was at Sydney, I think. And yeah, I have
0: to... yeah, yeah, it's definitely worth mm. worth taking a look at.
1: Yeah. Rob Connolly, thank you so much. It's Lovely really really to later. chat to yeah. you both. Thank and you for your want, time. We'll catch you up about the Balabo TV series.
0: Done. It happened here.
2: <laughs> Sitting not. here right now. I <laughs> have to thank him again. for. It was a us. great conversation. Yeah, he was very generous with his time. It was great talking to him.
1: And I think we might need a credit if this uh, Balabo thing gets up. Yeah,
2: let's go. <laughs> let's do it. Make yeah. some calls. So Deep Day starts Wednesday, August 22 at 9.35. And episodes are available After broadcast on SBS On Demand.
1: Now we come to the part of the show where we talk about what else we've been watching. Nothing tied to release dates, just things we found in our own time. Nick, what have you been watching?
2: People that listen to the show that know me know that I love good trailer outrage. (laughs) Trailer pops up online, people get furious before watching the show or movie, Mm. and then the the show or movie starts and... uh,
1: People go... I wasn't so bad after all. Yeah. Oh, all or, right.
2: or it I gets even
1: worse. Justifiably outraged.
2: So the latest is Insatiable. It is about a very overweight high school girl who is bullied and gets into a fight with a homeless man who punches her in the <laughs> face. And her jaw is wired shut for several months. And she loses lots of weight and becomes hot. Okay. So people were very upset. They thought that the show was going to highlight fat shaming and bullying in a non-body positive way. They thought she doesn't learn to accept that being overweight is okay and love yourself however you are. Mm. Um, But she
1: gets hot and...
2: She gets hot and that's how she finds self-worth, which sort of makes sense, except that this show is trying to, I think it thinks it's satirizing high school fat shaming. Mm-hmm. You saw the trailer. I've seen
1: the trailer. I haven't watched the show itself. I wasn't outraged by the trailer.
2: I didn't find it that outrageous it was, either. Mm, I thought I see it see what they're of trying flat. to do with this,
1: but yeah. It hasn't made me want to watch the show. That's, that's for sure. You have watched the show. Yes. Okay, this is a Netflix show, by the yes, way. Yes, Netflix show.
2: So I watched the first two episodes and fast-forwarded the rest. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Mm. Because it's, it's really bad. Um, why? But it's not bad because it's offensive. Mm -hmm. She is in a fat suit, which we are now, you know, when we see somebody in a fat suit where we think back to Gwyneth Paltrow and Shallow Hal or something. But that's not the bullying is very heightened. Mm -hmm. But so is everything on this show. And tonally, it's just all over the place. They're trying to satirize a certain kind of body change movie. I think it happens less in TV, but something like She's All That. Mm. they say their lines like, um, this is like the best 90s movie ever. Mm. Stuff like that. So it is supposed to be satire. Yeah. Mm.
1: Well, it struck me as kind of trying to be a bit of a Heather's movie.
2: Yes, very much so. In
1: that she goes on a revenge spree in the high school. and gets back at all the bullies.
2: Right. Mm. And unfortunately, it's less like the Heather's movie and more like the Heather's show, which is an unholy mess that Australia hasn't gotten to see, probably for the best. But... It's just way – there's so many – there are lots of jokes at the expense of fat people, uh, homeless people, and just – it's all way over the top and gross. But it's not very funny, and it's not heightened in the right kind of way so that you understand what is being made fun of. So I could see people just getting offended because they're they're not landing the jokes or the premise.
1: Okay. Sorry you had to watch that.
2: (laughs) But – all the outrage from the trailer is just, it ends up feeling kind of misplaced. And, I, I, you know, what do we learn from all of this? We keep going through this cycle.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of time for outrage at the idea of what a movie's about before you see the movie or the show. I mean, it typically happens a lot more with movies because a lot of really good movies have very problematic concepts, but it's the way they handle it when you see yeah, it. Of course. So, you know, I'm always, well, let me watch it yeah. first. Like the idea of something compared to the execution of that idea, yeah, can be worlds apart. So I don't like to buy into immediate knee-jerk reaction to something unless it's a vile premise and it also looks bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I'd still, I lean towards, let me see it. Mind you, I don't particularly want to watch Insatiable. There's a lot else. Yeah, I haven't.
2: No, it's not worth your time. Yeah. The thing is I'm becoming more aware The outrage is wearing me out. From a trailer now. And so I'm, I'm not on board with that. But if I think a trailer makes a movie or a TV show look bad, I'm totally fine with judging it based on that. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. I was more upset that this show looks terrible mm. than that the satire might not be landing about mm. bullying. Sure. Um, what have you been yes. watching?
1: Well, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, <laughs> I mentioned last time that I'd watched Beaches during my... Sure. Being holed up with the flu.
2: Classic movie.
1: <laughs> Comfort, classic, very, very, very easy watch. And uh, I watched Big Business. No, I, I appear to be being a Bette Midler completist at the moment. <laughs> I love Big Business. classic. I,
2: mean, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember it being very funny.
1: Classic life swap comedy. There's yeah. a few. Not a body swap, but a life swap. So it's twins that get mixed up due to a, a nurse who's not really on her game in a small town hospital Anyway, the twins get mixed up, so there's two Bet middlers, two Lily Tomlins, and they become a pair of Bet and Lily. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. There should be two Bets and two Lilies, but they're mixed up. Two of them grow up in said small town, Jupiter Hollow. Two Jupiter of them Hollow. grow up as very, very rich offspring of a high-flying Manhattan business couple. Anyway, fate brings them together. But, uh, yeah, anyway, then the twins meet and hilarity ensues.
2: So is it as funny as you remembered it being?
1: Oh, there's moments. I do love the Lily Tomlin curse snake eyes thing and Bette Middleton and quoting uh, Dynasty. Um, Look, it's great. It's of its time. It's an 80s movie. One of those when Disney used to make adult comedies through the Touchstone um, label, one of those ones. So that was, you know, when all the good Bette Midland movies came out in the 80s. It was like Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Yeah. Big business I'd, I've mentioned to my beloved and he'd not seen it in a while. So I said, let's put it on. Because a friend very kindly gave me the DVD. So directed by Jim Abrahams of Flying High, Naked Gun. Police Squad. Yeah. Top Secret.
2: Ruthless like People. Another good another Bette Midland movie. Another great one.
1: Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. you know, there's pedigree here. I
2: didn't realize he did this stuff on his own. Oh, my God. He's a hero. <laughs> All it's time you get back to big business, business, Nick. Oh. Scary movie for That was mm. the beginning of the end. Well, no, yeah. the beginning of the end was earlier than that. With Jane Austen's *Mafia*. Oh my God.
1: Anyway, <laughs> look, I love it. Holds a special place in my heart. And I went back.
2: Are you going to see *Outrageous Fortune* next?
1: Well, I fear I have. I feel I have. I'm probably not going to do it every week. <laughs> Shelley Long,
2: some of her best stuff. Mm. She did some good movies uh, around that time. Mm. I remember Big Business being my first introduction to the giving birth trope where in uh, the movie scene where the woman is um, screaming her head off and, um, you know, shouting at, at just everybody. Just a little prick.
1: That's what got me into this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's the
2: line. <laughs> that's what got me into this. Yeah. I'm going to watch this movie again.
1: I'll lend you the DVD.
2: What else can you lend me? What other movies?
1: Oh, we've got quite a comprehensive collection.
2: Do you have it up uh, on a shelf? Bookshelf where you can see
1: triple stacked, yeah.
2: No, that's nice. Maybe <laughs> we don't, people don't do that anymore. No, they don't. No, what else did you see? You saw something else? I
1: did. I also watched The Villainess,
2: it's about uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. <laughs>
1: Boom, take oh. that, take that. American the politics, fighting political commentary. People come for on the playlist. <laughs> no, this is a very wild South Korean action film, one of those. Incredible rampage of violence kind of movies. It opens on this amazing scene, or it's kind of a first person perspective of someone absolutely decimating gangs. They just come at her, turns out to be a woman in waves. And yeah, it's knives, it's guns, it's like a first person shooter game. And mm-hmm. you think, oh God, is the whole movie going to be like this? But it's not, but it's quite an engrossing opening. And then, yeah, it goes to various places. And it's a little, I don't know if it's a direct reference to. The Femme Nikita or The Assassin, kind of that storyline of the evolution of an an assassin, kind of there's a lot of nods to it so I haven't done my research there to know if it's overtly referencing that. But it's kind of how this woman is made into a killing machine and it's good. It's not amazing but.
2: Why did you watch this movie?
1: I had tried to watch it when it was coming to cinemas. I had a link but it buffered too much during that (laughs) first fight scene which is not the way to watch it when it's an action-packed Time and then you see the little spinning yeah, circle yeah, sure. and it drives you crazy. So I hadn't revisited it. Then I saw it popped up on Netflix. So okay. I, I wanted to, to finish it. Yeah, it's good. It's not amazing, like I say, but it, it's worth your time.
2: Well, Fiona, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, it's so all mine. Make sure you subscribe to... Uh, yeah, you. <laughs> you and everyone out there. Subscribe to SBS The Playlist, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us some stars. Leave a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to get in touch, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at SPS Movies. I'm on Twitter. Sure are. At Nick Bessine.
1: And I'm there at Anything But VF.
2: The playlist is produced by Dan Barrett with editing and mixing by Jeremy Wilmot. Until next week.
1: Thanks for listening.